0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Okay, um, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be tonight. Let's go ahead and stand before you get too settled. Transitional periods, Remember? You know, you're in a tra- stage of transition, you'll be more, more open to the word. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 31. <clears throat> Actually, let's just for context, let's begin reading in verse 28. And I'd like for all of us to read it together. Um, so, out loud, beginning in Romans eight twenty-eight, we'll read there down through the end of the chapter, and uh, stay with each other, listen to each other, and read out loud. Here's, read it out. Here we go, verse twenty-eight. Ready? Begin. And we know that all things good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. These things, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. "'Yea, rather, that is risen again, "'who is even at the right hand of God, "'who also maketh intercession for us, "'who shall separate us from the love of Christ, "'shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, "'or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? "'As it is written, "'For thy sake we are killed all the day long.' We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, ...nor any other creature... ...shall be able to separate us... ...from the love of God... ...which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And amen and amen. When you read those verses... ...and you think about the love of God... um, ...tonight I just want to... ...look at... ...God's love. And we've been going through this series... ...on Wednesday nights... ...about having a quiet soul... And there are some traits about God that can really help us in our souls to have rest. And one of those is his love for us. And so tonight I just want to focus on some questions and answer some questions about God's love. And uh, I'm excited about the fact that God loves me. Amen. And I don't deserve it, but I sure am thankful for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. brother. pray that you give us Clarity and understanding, Lord, use this message tonight to make a difference in our lives, in our approach to um, following you and loving you and serving you. God, you love us. We're so thankful. And I pray that you bless our time around your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the biggest question before us is always God himself... And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. There's a lot of rich truth in that phrase. Your idea of God will give people a picture, no your life before God will give people a picture of your view of God. Uh, uh, If you have children, especially if you have grandchildren, this is especially true of of grandparents, then, then you often carry pictures around with you because you want people to see what your children look like. Um, grandparents are definitely more prone to this. I, I love talking to grandparents because when you get into grandbaby talk, they suddenly perk up and get excited. Uh, inevitably, they'll pull out their wallet or these days, grandparents will even pull out their phones and they'll show you pictures on their phones of their grandchildren and in a similar way, we all carry about with us in the wallet of our minds uh, a picture of what God looks like. And honestly, uh, we let people know through our lives what God looks like in our brain's wallet. If your view of God was projected on the screen tonight, it would give us an accurate view of your future. It would give us an accurate picture of how you'll handle hardships, it, it, how likely you are to stand against temptation, uh, how stable you're going to be in your next emergency, how much joy you'll have in spite of your circumstances. Your picture of God will reveal to us what you'll look like in those situations. That picture of God is what we believe to be true about him. And, and maybe for you it's fuzzy, maybe for you it's faded or or pixelated. It could be that you don't, like the picture in your head and you don't look at it very often and if others saw your picture they might, may not like it either I read this uh, or heard Jim Berg talking about this he tells a story about when his kids were young and uh, he had little girls and they would go to his parents house and, and so uh, there, his parents had a very large cat in their house and I'm sure, first of all, why, but second of all, um, if you have a cat, I'm sorry, I did not mean to fit you there, but second of all, if you think about a big cat, and you think about a toddler, a cat to a toddler is the size of a mountain lion. So he would take his kids to his his, uh, parents' house, and as they were pulling into the driveway, his children would start asking questions like, um, is the cat outside? Is the cat outside, dad? Where's the cat? They were anxious. You, you probably, we dealt with these kinds of things when our kids were little, and especially if you didn't have animals when they were little, and, and, and they would go to some place that has an animal, and now they're nervous. You know, I, they, I must have been a scary cat because they were fearful every time, um, except the one time that they weren't afraid um, is when dad was holding the cat. So they'd be afraid the whole time. They'd be paranoid the whole time about this cat. And, and yet when dad was holding it, um, they wouldn't show fear. They would actually walk up to the cat and they would pet it and, and they would say, you know, I pet the kitty. and They'd be excited. Well, what, what was it about their dad that gave them confidence to pet the cat? Was it his size? Well, I mean, that may have had something to do with it. Um, except that when grandpa held the cat, they didn't do that to the cat. So it wasn't just about size. No, the reason that they were not afraid of the cat while dad was holding the cat is because they trusted dad. He had proved himself that he has good, he had the best intentions for his children and he would do what's best for them. And if you ask a Christian, do you think God loves you? They'll often say, of course, I'm certain He he loves me. Um, but even if he's holding the cat, we don't have confidence. See, they go, uh, many Christians go their own way after saying that they love God and they still, still feel unrest in their souls. If they really believe that God loved them, then that unrest would not be present in their souls. See, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39 give us some statements about God, the love of God that should not just give us facts, These aren't just things to know. These statements about God's love should give us rest. It's not just about what we know about God. It's about what we know about God affecting how we we are, uh, our state of being, our state of mind. And, um, you know, most of us know uh, that God is powerful and that he is love, but we don't on a daily basis consider how God's love affects us. We don't consider how God's love answers our questions. You know, if God loves me, why do I hurt so much? If God loves me, uh, why is my marriage not working? If God loves me, why did my loved one die? If God loves me, why do I have cancer? If God loves me, why don't I have a spouse? If God loves me, why can't I pay my bills? And we allow our circumstances to color our view of God's love instead of viewing our circumstances through the lens of God's love. And so we have it backwards. And when you read what Paul wrote, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? You see, those are the kinds of things that that cause Christians to doubt the love of God. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Even if we face those things, we know that in the end God will give us victory because he loves us. For I am persuaded um, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature... Does that pretty much cover the whole gamut of things? Is there anything that he left out? Not really. He says there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing in, uh, in my mind, in the world, uh, in your mind it, that you've ever faced that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he says. Amen. You know, we allow our circumstances to affect us how we think about God's love, but an understanding of the true nature of the love of God, it'll help us handle the circumstances. No person can have a genuinely God-taught contentment about life who has not seen the love of God for themselves. I mean, even in, in Paul, even in, over in Ephesians chapter 3, he wrote that he bowed his knees to the Father, that they would comprehend the breadth and the length and the depth and the height Of the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. He prayed, he said, he prayed that they would understand that. He prayed that they would get a glimpse of the love of God. And he prayed it because it's not natural to understand God's love. Listen, we ought to pray that God would give us a glimpse of his love. That we can fully understand it and and, and that we'll truly see it for what it is. So I'm just going to simply tonight ask four questions and try to talk about these or answer these and the questions are these what is God's love how vast is God's love how do I know God loves me and what difference does it make so again what is God's love how vast is God's love how do I know God loves me and what difference does it make well what is God's love well love falls under the category of God's goodness and there's two big ideas about God. You've got the goodness of God and you've got the greatness of God. Uh, we, so you've got the, the greatness of God is that part of God that is his power and his omniscience and his, uh, his omnipresence and all these big things about God. So he's powerful, but God's goodness is also that God is personal. So he's, his greatness is that he's powerful, his goodness is that he's personal, and that he's not just a powerful God reigning over us and, 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 and uh, making sure that we, we stay in line and that we do everything we're supposed to do for him. No, um, no, his power, uh, it, it, should, it should give us confidence, but it is his person, um, his personal touch, his goodness that, that truly gives us security. See, we use the word good in a couple of different ways. That God is good means that God is excellent. We might say, she's a good singer. We might say, that was a good meal. We might would say, he's a good kid. Not any not of my kids, but somebody else's kids. They're a good kid. No, there's lots of good kids. You know, when you say that, you mean that person meets the ideals of what it takes to be an effective singer, or or an effective cook, or, or meet the ideals of excellent behavior. See, God is a good God in that he perfectly answers every ideal that's required of one to be God. I'm going to say that again. God is a good God in that he perfectly answers every ideal that is required of one to be God. And so if you don't know what a perfect creator looks like, then you won't have an idea of whether or not he measures up to being good. Wrong expectations lead to wrong behavior. Let's say that a child is raised in a privileged home. And I'm not sure many of us would know what that's like, okay? We're raised by normal parents, just kind of down to earth, most of us. Let's say that a child is raised by very privileged uh, in a very privileged home, and that child um, is allowed to make a lot of decisions for themselves. And so uh, their parents ask plenty of questions like uh, what do you what do you want for supper? What time do you want to go to bed? These are dangerous, by the way. What do you want to wear? Would you rather go to school or play video games? I know the answer to that one. And it sounds crazy. It probably happens more than we realize. But let's say that child gets gets their first job, and and, and they go to Chick Fil A and they get a job. Okay, we got a, half our church works at Chick Fil A these days, and so got to use it as an example. So their first day, they go to Chick Fil A, and they get hired, and their first day, they're told you're going to sweep, you're going to sweep the lobby. You're going to clean off the tables, and you're going to clean the bathrooms. Okay, that's a pretty good first day at the job. And But this young person who's raised in a privileged home says, that's not what I came to do. I came to sit in the office at the desk in the back, be on my phone, and tell other people what they're going to do. So how long do you think they'll have a job at Chick-fil-A? Not very long. I mean, they'll probably be fired and the next day go to Taco Bell and be one of the best workers there, so. (laughs) Sorry, I can say that about Taco Bell because the food is so good, you know, it kind of balances it all out. So, you know, his expectations will have to be adjusted before he can function as an employee submitted to the process. Or he won't have a job very long. You know, we have expectations Um, of God in our minds and we have an idea of what it's supposed to look like what he's supposed to be like whether or not it's accurate no but unless we understand what he what he's like then we might grow discontent with God and God answers every ideal about what a perfect creator is supposed to look like our problem is not an inadequate God our problem is an inadequate view of God Our problem is we don't know him or we don't know how well he, how he works well enough. So we give him bad marks sometimes when things are hard, not because he's not a good God, but because we don't know what a good God is supposed to look like. We haven't invested ourselves enough to know him and understand him. And remember, at the core of every temptation is the thought that God is not enough for me. And and just like when Satan showed up in the garden and he said, God is trying to withhold something from you, Eve. God is trying to keep something really good away from you. And what did he have to do to get Eve to be tempted? He had to convince her there was something else out there. He had convinced her that there, there was some vacuum of, of, of emptiness and discontentment that he had to create that so she would want to fill it. And Satan disputed God's goodness and love for Adam and Eve and it planted seeds of discontentment and they sinned. And that, that God, that, that God is good, it means that God is benevolent. He's not just good at what he does, he's good to us. God is good-willed and he's giving and he makes good choices for me. Can you imagine where you would be if your life right now was determined solely by all the choices you have made? I mean, think about it. If your life right now was only the product of the choices that you have made, where would you be? Some of us wouldn't be sitting here. Probably most of us wouldn't be sitting here. Some of us wouldn't be sitting anywhere above ground. Some of us would be sitting in less desirable places. You know, if our life was really just the sum of our choices only... Then where would we be? No, listen, you have a God at work in the background of your life. And, and He is a all these other forces, yes, they're strong and they're working against you, but God's love and benevolence, His care, His giving, His compassion toward us, listen, it has it is His mercy toward us. It has preserved us, it, is, it has helped us, it has saved us many times. And if it's up to us, we are in trouble. But because he's involved, we have a chance. And he's not just good, he's good to us. And it's, it, it's kind of, turn over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. And it is, it is kind of, it's not, it's telling that I could say God is not just good, he's good to us. And and get not much response it's telling because we're used to hearing it it's like if I say Jesus died on the cross for your sins you know that doesn't mean a lot to people that have heard it a lot like to make that statement to somebody who's never heard that somebody died for them they don't just take it like we do if it's brand new, the first time they've ever heard it, they're like, "Somebody, somebody died for me." You mean somebody literally gave their life for me? But I can say Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and I'm saying, "Amen." That's nice. I do it too. I'm saying we get complacent about the things, some things that matter a lot. Right, right. Psalm 107 is a great passage in. You'll notice some repeating things here. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. He's good. He's shown us mercy. He's redeemed us. Can you imagine if God's mercy wasn't on your life, you'd still be in the clutches of your enemy. He's good to you. He has mercy for you, toward you. He delivers you. Look down at verse eight. You'll see, you'll start to see a a little bit of a trend here. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 15, oh that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 21, oh that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 31, oh that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Are you seeing the theme? See, God deserves our praise because he's good and he reveals his goodness through, uh, to, uh, through his works to us. He is good and he is good to us. And, and his, the repetition is a picture of the fact that how many times God had delivered Israel and, and they should praise him every time. Listen, if this was my psalm and I was writing it, I would say that verse more times than just four or five. I'd have to say it every day. Oh, that men would praise him uh, for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I'd have to write it over and over because it's a picture of the fact that God has shown me mercy so many times. And I should praise him every time that he's been so good to me and so benevolent to me. Verse 42, the end of the chapter, it says, the righteous shall see it and rejoice and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise... And will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So you want to understand the loving kindness of the Lord? Then you need to over and over and over and over again. If you're wise, you're going to observe all the times God has been good to you in your life. And his mercy has been evident to you in your life. And you should stop and praise him. That's what a wise person will do. A wise person observes and doesn't take it for granted, doesn't take for granted that God has been good to me, not just once or twice, but over and over and over and over. I'm thankful for these truths and for these, this, this way to kind of, we're, we, we tend to argue our way out of God's love. So yeah, but look at this Circumstance. Yeah, but look at what's happening in my life and look at, what, look at this and look at that. No, you need to go back and you need to rehearse God's goodness. You know, every single day, you probably ought to rehearse God's goodness. Every single day, you need to stop and think about all the works that God has proven himself in your life through. So what is, that's the love of God. What, how vast is God's love? This one is not possible for me to explain. But what is the extent of God's love? Remember, Paul prayed that we would understand the length and breadth and depth of God's love in Christ that passeth knowledge. We read in Romans 8 that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, uh, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So, what are those adjectives? uh, What are they, or what does that descriptor, those descriptors all tell us about God's love? Here's what it tells us, and this is really helpful. God's love is eternal. You know what that means practically? You can't do anything that will cause him to love you more. You cannot do anything that will cause God to love you more. And and so many Christians are doing their best to try to get God to like them. And that's how they're living. And they're like, I've got to do my best, I've got to work, and I've got to please him. And I, he's, I've got to make him happy with me. No, listen, he already loves you with a perfect love. How can your efforts and self-sufficiency increase that? He already loves you everlastingly. It's kind of like when, when, as when your kids were little and some of you still have young ones at home and, and ours are getting past that phase, this phase, but they'd go to Sunday school and, and every week they'd bring you home a coloring page or something that they draw on. And they drew a, Daddy, Daddy, I drew you a picture. Daddy, Daddy, I colored this. And it's like four lines across the face of you know uh, Zacchaeus up in the tree, you know. And that's it. And you take it and you're like, oh, it's so... It's so colorful. You, you worked so hard on this. Daddy, you know, that's, that's all they did. But you, you want it, it means something to you. And so they, Daddy, my, my kids would do this to me. Daddy, can you hang it up in your office? You know, at the church. You know, they want me to put it like on my office door. That's what they want me to do with it. I'm like, oh, you know, there's already just kind of already full. Let's put it on the refrigerator at, at home because then your family can see it. And, and it'll really be special to them. You know, and, and so I'm a, you know, I get excited about the picture, um, you know, and then a few months later my wife does a purge and it disappears. But, but, until, but for a while that picture hangs on the fridge. Does it hang on the fridge because it's a masterpiece? Well, the defensive parents in here say, "Well, my child is actually very superior in their artwork. My four-year-old colored in the lines last just last week, actually. It's like they're not Picasso, okay? So, actually, Picasso is a bad example, okay? So, they're not as good at art. art. You know why you like the artwork? Because you love them. You love that child, so you love the artwork." And we've got to translate that to our Heavenly Father. Because here's the truth about it. I've never, I have never painted a masterpiece, a spiritual masterpiece in God's eyes. I mean, I've never, uh, it, he's, I, it would take a lot for us to impress a God like him. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? Have you seen uh, mountains? Have you seen the beauty of the Black Hills? Have, I mean, For me to do something that impresses God, that would take a lot. I mean, it's not like when I get to heaven that God's going to like, he's here. Everyone be quiet. Here he comes. No, no, he's not. It's not going to be that way. I mean, not because of all the stuff I did. It's not like I did all this amazing stuff for the kingdom of God that's just stellar and above and beyond. That's not it. You know why You know why? when I stand before God, if I get to hear well done, which is honestly the only thing I care about. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to live my life in such a way that he says well done. I want him uh, to look at what I've done and be pleased. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, that should be your, ro- your goal as well. The most important thing should, in your life should be when I stand before him, will he be pleased? And as a pastor, and I've said this a few times, I was reminded of it this last week at, men's, at the Men's advances. that my responsibility for you is to prepare you for the judgment seat of Christ. That's, that is my, my, it's my role in your life. And that may mean, may mean there are times where I have to say something that you may not like. Or I have to talk to you about something. It's not because I'm superior, it's because God put me in a position to help you sometimes with those things. And I stand up here and there are things I say up here that I'm not all that comfortable saying, but they need to be said for God's people. Yeah. So I, I say them out of a heart of love. I want you to be prepared for that moment. But listen, the reason that if I stand before God and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it's not because I did such a great job at Christianity. It's, you know why? It's because he loves me. The reason that he will be able to say that, now listen, obviously then I have to live a certain way, but it's not like in living a certain way it impresses him. No, the reason that he, if he was to tell me he lo- that he's pleased with me, it'd be like the parent taking the picture from the kid, the child and, and saying, I, I love it. It's not because it's so high level, it's because God loves me. And, and he he wants to be pleased with me, and he, he wants to, for me to live a life that is well done, and my efforts matter. I know that I should do my best, but his pleasure in me is based on his love for me, not the quality of my works for him. I, I'm not going to outdo everybody else. Does that mean I don't let him work in me and through me? No, I, those are the only works that count. But it's, but it's his love for me, like a dad's love for their child, that's the basis of him being pleased with us. And I feel for you if you're trying to get to God to like you. Or if you think that you've got to work in such a way to make him happy with you and you're working your spiritual fingers to the bones just to do it, no, that's not the basis of God's pleasure in you. God already loves you with an everlasting love. And you can't do anything to get him to love you more. Let that free you up. Let that free you up from the bonds of of legalism and and self-righteousness. Let it free you up to serve him because you love him in return. Not in order to earn his love. You don't have to perform perfectly to get a well done, by the way. You have to love him and you have to do your best for him. We can't do anything to to cause God to love us more. But the opposite is also true. He already loves you with an everlasting love. So you cannot do anything that will cause him to love, love you less. You cannot do anything to cause God to love you less than he loves you. And this is not Joel Osteen talking, by the way. This is Bible. And if you've ever bought a used car, then you know what it's like to gamble. When you buy a used car, you never know what you're going to get, right? You trust the Carfax report and maybe, hopefully, the person you bought from is trustworthy. But really, it's somewhat of a gamble. We don't gamble, but buying a used car is the closest we'll get to it. You don't know if you're getting a lemon. You don't know if you're going to get a car that runs or you're going to get a car that serves your purpose. You just don't know. But listen, when God bought us, he knew what he was getting. Right. And he knew our mistakes. He knew our failures. He knew all the bad decisions. He knew all the weaknesses. And while it may surprise us when we mess up, he's never surprised. He bought us knowing all of that. Listen, he knew I was a lemon. And whoever who would do that? I wouldn't buy a car that's a lemon. But God bought me. And I'm a lemon. Should have called the message that. I'm a lemon. I'm a sinner. And I have major flaws. And I've made plenty of mistakes, and he knew it, and he bought me anyway. And there may not be a truth that should give you more security in your Christian life than that. Jeremiah 31, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us. He proved it. Romans 8.32, our passage, he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All of those things were true. Listen, those verses, those truths were true before you ever did your first work for God and before you ever committed your first sin to, before God. They were true before you ever did anything for him or did ever did anything against him. God will never love you more and he'll never love you less and nothing you do can change that. That's how vast his love is. That's pretty exciting. So how do I know God loves me? Well, this one's pretty clear. God's goodness and love is seen on the cross. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Paul said, God forbid that I should both save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing should fundamentally change your perspective on life than a, more than a true glimpse of Calvary. When's the last time you looked at the cross and saw not just the symbol but thought about literally thought about Jesus dying? We just had the communion service a couple of weeks ago. And listen, when you get a glimpse of the cross, it leaves a mark. And if you, if you need a shift in perspective, you know what you ought to do? If you've lost your perspective on things, spend a whole morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And just read it and meditate it on it and memorize it. And when you realize that he was wounded for my transgressions, he was bruised for my iniquities. By his stripes I am healed, and and it's true. When you get a glimpse of that, then you all you'll be able to do is honestly is just praise the Lord. You won't have any other response except, except just praising God and being. Uh, emo, I mean, it's emotional, and I mean you think about all the great truths in our in our. Hymnal. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the, the Nazarene. I wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful that my song shall ever be. I mean, this is my Savior's love for me. I mean, there's some amazing lyrics. I mean, just, I'm just thinking about the cross and, and thinking about, and can it be that I should gain? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's, in the Savior's blood? Like, how should it, how can it be that, 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 that his blood would, that he would have any interest or that I would be able to have any part in his blood? Died he for me? He, did he really die for me? Who, I'm the one that caused his pain. For me? Who him to death pursued? Was it really me who he went to die for? Somebody like me? And when you realize that, yeah, that's true. It was for us. Amazing love. How can it be? Big question mark. That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. It's a big question mark. You know, that song is a song of rejoicing, But it's really a song of, is this real? You know, that he would do that for me. I mean, I I think of the second verse of how great thou art. Third verse. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. What does it say? I scarce can take it in. That on the cross... My burden gladly bearing. Gladly? What? He bled and died to take away my sin. You know, the only response I can even think of right now. Then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art. I mean, that's literally all you can do. All all that men would praise him. I mean, for his wonderful works. You know, what? so how do we know God loves loves us? Well, just look at the cross and try your best. Those of you that are, you know, professional Christians raised in church your whole life, just like me. You see a cross, you're like, oh, there's a cross. No, Jesus died, literally died. And he didn't die um, for the perfect ones. He died for the sinful ones. He died for the lemons. Like you and I. And if those lyrics of the songs like that, if they don't move you, that may be why you're anxious. That may be why you're in despair or you're angry because you have forgotten the perspective of life. Which is that God loves you with that kind of love. After Calvary, it's blasphemy to say God doesn't love us. God's love is all through the Bible. And yet when things don't go how we expect, the first thing we doubt is that God loves us. After Calvary, there should be no doubt. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has gone through our temptations. He felt what we felt. He knows me, yet he loves me. As the old song, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You know, one of my favorite statements of God's love is, he who knows me best loves me the most. And I'm just amazed at that. So what difference does God's love make? Well, I had all these, it banishes our fear. If you, if you wonder if God's love really makes a difference, for John said there's no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear. So if you live your life fearfully, you know what you've lost sight of? God's love. Because God's love should give you security, not fear. Fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made Perfect in love. If God with a perfect love is for us, who could be against us? You know, what What difference does it make? Well, it compels us to love other people. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. If God so loved, we ought also to love one another. If I've experienced, if you've experienced the unconditional love of God and you don't feel compelled that somebody else should understand or experience that same level of love, I mean, what kind of perspective are you living? In a similar way, it also, God's love makes us evangelistic. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ constraineth me, and that word constraineth means grips me, it holds on to me. Basically, I can't let this go. The love of Christ is holding on to me. I can't let it go. i got to tell somebody, he says. And he talks about how God, through Christ, has reconciled the world to himself. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation. You know, if God's love has changed your life, then you should live your life seeing, trying to see other lives changed. That's why it shouldn't be, you know, twisting arms to get people involved, to in outreach and telling other people about Jesus because the difference made in our lives should compel us. The love of Christ compels us. It inspires worship. In Revelation 5, the, the, uh, the redeemed, the Bible says they'll be singing a song for eternity. And guess who they're singing the song to? The lamb that was what? Slain. So worship for eternity is about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. If if somebody gives their life for you, do you not think you'll you'll live remembering it the rest of your life? I mean, yeah, if somebody saves your life, is that not something you'd think about all the time? I think so. Well, Jesus died, the lamb that was slain, and the Bible says we'll be singing about that for eternity. Also, his love motivates us to love him the best we can. We love him because he first loved us. Listen, if there's nothing I can do to make him love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make him love me less, then I will do all I can to love him because those things are true. If that's true, then I'm going to love him the best I can. What is God's love? Well, it is sacrificial. He wants to meet our needs. He's benevolent. How vast is it? It's everlasting. How do I know God loves me? The cross. What difference does it make? Well, it calms my fears and it compels me to love others and it gives me a heart for worship and it makes me love him. Listen, it's not just that God loves sinners. God loves you. God loves you. And you've probably heard that your whole life and you see it on, I mean, you see it at Hobby Lobby and all the little hand-painted signs that are real trendy to put up in your kitchen. God loves you. I, I mean, I know it's trendy, but it's also true. God loves you, for the, maybe for the first time in a long time. You should stop and think about that. God loves you and you're a lemon. And Joel Osteen would not say that. That's how you know this message did not come from him. God would say, God loves you and you're a champion. No, God loves you and you're a lemon. That's That's how we know he loves us. Listen, your soul can rest because God's love is more than enough for you. And it's not something that you can earn. You already have it. So it's not just that he loves us. It's how much he loves us. With the cross, he loves us. And if the God of heaven can love a sinner like me with a cross, then i that's all I need to be at rest in life. So I don't know if you've got anxiety or you've got fears or you've got anger or you've got worry, and you've got these things that are unsettled and there's not quiet in your soul. You know what you probably ought to do is you ought to do a study through God's word on God's love for his people. Because when you know that he's the one holding the cat, all the things that you'd be afraid of suddenly look really small. And not just because of his size, but because he's already proven how much he loves you. So you have confidence he's not going to let you walk up to the cat and then throw it at you. I mean, maybe dads in here would do that. But not our father he has proven he loves you, so why are you still anxious? He's proven he loves you, so why do you still have fears? Perfect love casteth out fear, the Bible says. So there's got to be a time in your, in, in your very near future, if you're struggling with these things, there's got to be a time where you stop everything else. And you and just God's word and the Holy Spirit get alone somewhere, and you do a study and a meditation and a reflection on God's love for you. Read Isaiah 53. As many times as it takes for you to, in your mind, see him hanging there. And it'll start to convince you, okay, he really does love me a lot. More than anybody else has ever loved me. And it's not just that he loves me, it's that he loves me me a lemon and if God loves me then I don't have to live my life in fear I don't have to live my life wondering what's next because I have a father who absolutely loves me I can't do anything to make him love me more I can't make him do anything to love me less but because those things are true I can love him with all my heart And that's how I choose to live my life. Are you struggling with anxiety and unrest? Are you struggling with noise in your soul? Maybe you should focus on God's love. Spend some time studying the love of God. And watch it cause those things that are causing you to be unrestful disappear. Because that's how powerful his love is. Let's stand together.